Thanks for listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos and the PCC Multiverse. Check out more great podcasts today on one of these awesome affiliate networks. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The Tangibound Network. Check it out. TangiboundNetwork.com. Listen to this show, the latest episode, every time. A proud member of the Gunna Geek Network. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1. On this week's episode, did Rampage do some damage at the box office? Our picks for the best in the NBA season, and was the change for Thor a good thing? All this and more as we once again delve into the pop culture cosmos. Welcome to the pop culture cosmos. We are back once again with another episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. My name is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. We truly thank you for tuning in each and every time you catch us on the radio dial or you catch us on the download. It is once again another great episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. But it wouldn't be this show without my good friend. He is the man, the myth, the legend at Humanic Media. You got to check out all the great things that are going on in the world of Humanica Media at humanicamedia.com. It's Josh Peterson. What's going on, my friend? Just reeling from that Los Angeles Kings loss that should have been a victory. But we won't talk about that because it's a happy show full of happy things and not uh, desks flipping over and stuff. And I won't even tell him that I'm actually my end of the show is being done from the Vegas area. And I'm so sad to hear about that going on because, as I've told people the past couple of weeks here in the Las Vegas area, that my heart is torn because half my life was spent in LA and almost half my life has been spent here. So I have a question, a very important yes. question. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I get that brand new franchises, yeah, anyone who votes for that team is going to be considered a bandwagon, but. The people in the audience, how much of them, because tickets, you, you're saying $200 a pop for nosebleed section. People in the audience, how much of them do you think are high rollers or like affiliated with casinos and stuff? And how many do you think are actual hockey fans? A lot of them are locals. Some of them I know personally that have actually spent a great deal of money, and I won't say how much on the air, how much they spent on the tickets for the games, uh, but I have consulted with them about that. Some of them are really big fans. Some of them have like the Blues, the Kings, the Penguins, and are still affiliated so much with those franchises. It's taken over this town as far as the success of this team. And truth be told, it was a hard time to get the the actual 10,000-seat deposit to actually get a team here in Las Vegas to begin with. So it was a hard sell to bring a team to Las Vegas in the first place. But once they got them here, it seemed to have snowballed, and the success from it has now really helped the Las Vegas area. And also, as well, it's really revitalized and, and given something for the city to rally around, especially after the events back in October and, and what happened there. And it really has been something good for the city 
So it is a happy story right now. And, and having the best expansion team ever in the major sports history here in the United States, it's a great story indeed. But like, like I said, it's Cinderella. The glass slipper fits right now. Will it stay fit? We don't know. The glass slipper might break at any moment, but at least it's a good story for now, at least in the, in the NHL. Is it though? Is it? <laughs> well, certainly not for 100% Kings fans like yourself, and I can totally understand that. But it is a great episode coming up indeed we have for you. We're going to be talking the latest in the box office, and it was definitely a close race this weekend in the U.S. box office. Rob McCallum is also standing by in the Cosmic Crossfire. We're going to go at it as far as our choices for the best cinematic universe. He's got three choices coming up for me. Anthony Barbant comes up later in the show. We're going to be dishing out our NBA postseason awards. And then also at the back end, Josh and I are going to be talking about what's going on with our breakdown with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we're up to, believe it or not, Thor Ragnarok and our thoughts on the changes in Thor's character with that film. But right now we're going to be talking about the breakdown in this weekend's box office. For a while, Josh, on Friday, it looked like A Quiet Place would sneak out another victory here domestically at the box office this weekend. But with pretty pretty good social media, as far as the word of mouth per se, it looks like Rampage will take the weekend at the box office with about $34 million. Just behind it, with about $32.5 million, is A Quiet Place with a very good hold, which you predicted, Josh, and looks like the numbers are going to be so good for A Quiet Place that when it is all said and done, it will probably be the highest-grossing non-Marvel movie this year. So it will probably pass Ready Player One here at some point in the next two or three weeks and become the highest-grossing non-Marvel movie here in the United States. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of movies to go, and, and it'll get blown away by others. But for now, it's a small victory for a really, really cool movie, in which you really liked. If you want to check out our episodes last week, we had an episode devoted to the review of The Quiet Place, so check that out. Josh, your thoughts on the weekend box office? Rampage did hold out the victory, but A Quiet Place wasn't too far behind. It actually really surprises me that Rampage did so well. I think, you know, and I want to say it's mostly due to The Rock. Does Have you read any actual reviews on what people are saying about the movie? Well, the critical reviews are saying it's basically either extremely negative or it's just plain popcorn dumb fun. That's the best I can see as far as from what I see from a critical standpoint. From the word of mouth, people seem to like destruction and they're going about it in the right way. They're leaving their critical and analytical mind at the door and just say, hey, look, let's have some fun destroying some buildings and, and so on and so forth. So if that's the case, it looks like it's going to go ahead and at least have a couple of weeks of a good run before it gets destroyed by Infinity War. Now, the question here is that I'm posed to you. It did earn over $50 million this week at the Chinese box office, exceeding what it did here in the United States. It's made around almost $140 million worldwide so far. It has a long way to go, just like Ready Player One did before it either breaks even or actually makes a profit at the box office. Right now, it looks like Ready Player One will do so, but... Will Rampage see the same kind of success long-term 
at the worldwide box office and turn a profit, which is a rarity for a video game adaptation. Here's the thing with that. A lot of people I've talked to don't actually know that Rampage is a video game adaptation. So, like, how many critics actually know that? This one's weird because the rules don't seem to apply to this movie. One, because it's it's a rock, and two, because it's such an obscure property. Like, you ask a lot of people, uh, Double Dragon, you know, they, they make fun of movies from the 80s. I know you had a big part in the making of that film. Uh, uh, they talk about movies from the yeah. 80s. <laughs> Walk down memory lane. And not a good one, I shall say. We need to go into detail on this one day. But yeah, 80s movies. It's like say like Double Dragon. Like, oh, it's such a bad movie. But they don't know it's a video game. There's a lot of stuff out there. People don't know that it's video games. So this movie's weird. And it doesn't surprise me that it would do well in a foreign market just because that seems to be the trend. Pacific Rim did well over there. Godzilla, I'm sure. Monster movies tend to do well in those markets because... They're not as snobby as we are when it comes to uh, critic culture and stuff like that. So I don't know. Transformers man. movies obviously have done great there as well. Yeah, that's because that's that's their culture. You know, they're more into sci-fi, cool mech robot stuff, and we're more into the uh, socially conscious type films, and, and and we like to judge things pretty harshly. So it's interesting. I I'm not going to see it in theaters, but I will watch it when it comes out. I think I'll do the same, but it's nice to see that there is some sort of market for these video game adaptations, and they're not all just going to go and fail miserably each and every time they come out. I agree with you. Not a lot of people know when they're going to the theaters that this is a video game adaptation. If the reviewer has done their homework, it shows in the review, that, and it shows that they know about it being a video game adaptation but you're right there are some that are totally missing the boat on that aspect be that as it may i'm gonna say it's still gonna have a hard time breaking even but at least we know that the rock can power a movie to a decent opening even a movie that was i guess uh, the uh, metacritic and rotten tomatoes i think squeaked above 50 percent. but still that's a lot of bad reviews out there for it even though there's some decent ones as well that's still not a very highly acclaimed picture. And it's nice to know that The Rock, with his clout and his box office power, can go ahead and power a movie on his name to at least a number one opening. It's not a guarantee, mind you, but at least in this case, it's barely squeaked out the number one opening as far as that's concerned here in the U.S. and actually all over the world as well. I'm going to ask this. Does his cloud and does his streak end with the upcoming skyscraper movie coming out later this year? Because from all the buzz I'm seeing and all the word of mouth I'm seeing, people are just not liking this movie at all. And they're just, just trying to equate it to Die Hard or some, some other movies as far as being a total ripoff of it. And, and they really think that skyscraper will be the end of the road as far as Rock's run as a box office champ. I don't know, man, because we were saying the same thing about Rampage, so it'll be interesting. Honestly, as long as there's another Fast and the Furious coming down the pipeline, I don't think we're going to be seeing the end of The Rock anytime soon. He could, Every star can do one or two flubs and still be loved and admired and sell movies. Look at Vin Diesel. He, like, he's had quite a few, yet back in Fast and the Furious, though, uh, Groot, he's still, people still love him. He's still in the spotlight. 
maybe people won't be as willing to, and you know and they shouldn't make movies like skyscraper but yeah we'll see man i, I think that the rock definitely has because baywatch despite it, all of its shortcomings people still liked it like it was a stupid movie jumanji was another one we didn't think was going to do so well it's literally the box office with the rock is unpredictable there's no way to, to even know where that's going that could be a, a sinking ship that ends up riding itself and driving around the world so we we don't know it's it's really hard to tell with him well at least at this point it's easy to say that at this point in time he's about as good a box office star as there is maybe at this point at this point, maybe Chris Pratt is probably a bigger star right now if he continues this route because as long as The Rock continues this line of maybe suspect choices in films, it will leave the door open for Chris Pratt to go ahead and take that mantle, which he I think he's just about ready to take anyways if he hasn't already with his stock as far as with the Jurassic Park movies as the number one box office star being in both Marvel and Jurassic Park, plus also as well, he did okay in Passengers and whatnot. So we'll have to wait and see. But at this point in time, The Rock's clout is still there. And it's great to see that at least he can still power a halfway decent movie to a number one box office weekend. What are your thoughts on the weekend in the box office? Are you glad the Rampage still found a way to eke out a victory over a quiet place? Or did you want to see quiet place upset everyone again at the box office and take a second week in a row for that really solid underdog of a movie? Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also as well, popculturecosmos, humanica media, and game stars on Facebook and Twitter as well. Well, it's going to be a great episode we've got for you indeed. But first, we've got our good friend. It's Elijah Harrison, a.k.a. Plasma Z. This is Supernova, and this is the Pop Culture Cosmos. Yeah. 
You're listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos. Get ready for Kitty Origins Evolutions, the latest documentary from Rob McCallum. Generously peppered with archival footage shot by the band, this film gives you an honest and brutal look at what it takes to survive in the music industry. Order the DVD, Blu-ray, and live CD triple pack that features recordings from throughout their 20-year illustrious history from RobMcCallumFilms.com. RobMcCallumFilms.com, your place for awesome stories about awesome people and films worth watching. And it is time once again for the Cosmic Crossfire. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. We thank you so much for listening to the show today. It would definitely not be a Cosmic Crossfire without my good friend. He is the man, the myth, the legend behind RobMcCallumFilms.com. You got to check out all the great things going at Rob McCallum Films, including the smash hit that sold out on Amazon. It's the amazing Kitty documentary, and here he is now, my good friend, the director, Rob McCallum. What's going on, man? Oh, just living the dream. The Kitty doc has been released to much fanfare, for sure, and a lot of critical acclaim as, as the press starts rolling in, and we're really excited to have that out there. And it's, it's you know, by far one of my favorite projects that I've done for a variety of reasons. So anybody that has, you know, Amazon, go order it now. It shot up to number one on the metal charts because it's included a live CDs part of that set. So check out Kitty Origins Evolutions. Hear the, uh, the tale of the heavy metal band that started with a group of teenagers who wondered, wouldn't it be great if we were rock stars? And they got to live the dream, for better or worse. And 20 years later, they're here to tell their story. If you get a chance, check it out. Kitty, Origins, and Evolutions. But like you said, you've got a lot going on starting this month as well. Well, I should say, you and I did talk briefly off camera. And your big concern with the Kitty Doc was you wanted to know more. You wanted to see and hear more. And there is a three-hour version out there of the documentary. It was reserved just for Indiegogo backers. But... You never know if you make enough noise and the sales do well enough, they may try to get that three hour version from us and release it on mass. So check it out. Check out the 90 minute version. If you want to know more then you know, make some noise online. There's so much to learn and there's so much that you want to know when it comes to Kitty and their success. So much got put into the 90 minute that you just want to know more. So definitely check it out today. Kitty origins and evolutions. But Again, you've got a lot of stuff going on in April, my friend, including announcement that you made coming up for later this month. After five years, we're ready to go on another quest. And on April 24th, join us on Kickstarter to see what that quest might pertain to. What is this new quest that Jane Rob are going on? Kickstarter, April 24th. It'll be great. So my friend, there is a lot going on in the realm of pop culture. So pray tell, Rob, what's on your mind when it comes to pop culture this might be relegated to a show that i used to do on a podcast that we called the great debate and there's a few episodes out there you can check out on my youtube channel and i think gerald's played a few excerpts here and there on the pop culture cosmos from time to time when he's really hard up for content he'll dip into that well i'd like to see that come back someday i don't know that's a lot i I know you would i know you would but there's no there's no intelligence to it it's just shouting who can shout the loudest and, and be the most compelling in the moment Works for ESPN, doesn't it? It works for ESPN. So the the big question is, which cinematic universe is better? And I throw out this because everybody's, you know, clamoring about, 
oh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is so great. And it started, you know, 10 years ago with Iron Man and oh, look at all the stuff they've done with all these interconnected stories. And oh, it's just so good. But I posit two other entries for best cinematic universe, Gerald. And that is James Bond and the Bondverse and Star Trek. Wow, that's a tough choice because as, as much Bond as has been going on since 1950 and they all do connect to each other. And I've seen all the Bonds. And Trek, even the original films and, and series tie in together and they tie into Next Generation and they tie into Voyager and they tie into Deep Space Nine and Enterprise and even the new films tie into that stuff because of Leonard Nimoy and the alternate timeline. But it's so hard yeah, because there's so many highs and lows. That's the problem. There's so many highs and uh, fortunately for all three of them, there are so many lows. More so, I think, with the Star Trek as far as that universe. Because when it hit some lows as far as creatively, Star Trek Five, Final Frontier, I'm looking I at you. I love Star Trek Five. I'm that, I'm that guy that likes number five. That's the one that was directed by God, Shatner, correct? What does God need with a starship? Yeah, yeah. It's directed by Shatner. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Yes, I yeah, know. There I, are some really good moments in that flick. I get uh, why it's a little hokey, but there are some really quality moments. Uh, yeah, well, uh, and number one, it's still actually, it, it would still be going on today because it just seems like that one took forever. So, Did you hear that the, the Voyager orbiter satellite is tr- still transmitting and it sent back images last week to, to NASA? Yeah, saw that. Vija! Vija is alive! Vija is alive. But there's also, when obviously went to the next generation, there were some highs and lows as well. I do love the reboots. As far as the first two in the series, the the last one's kind of eh for me, but I'm going to surprise it you. It would be easy for me to say the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I'm actually going to go with Bond. Okay. I actually will. Well, on, is, on what grounds, now that you've had some time to consider, is, is it just the highs or is it the, the duration, like the longevity of the series? I think the fact that it's lows as far as a movie, as far as the ones that you were able to point out as far as being the worst in the film series are still more watchable than the lows of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and also as well the Star Trek Universe. So I think of the three, slight thumbs up to the so, James Bond. So just universe. to clarify, you're not necessarily comparing like the wins in each of them. You're saying they each have outstanding entries. Wrath yeah. of Khan, Iron Man. Skyfall. Uh, Skyfall, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But like it, you're, you're really comparing the lows and, and the depths in which they plummet comparatively series to series, yeah? Uh, you have to because you're now talking about what eighteen films. What you, give me a, give me a handful of the entries that you're really kind of comparing. So you mentioned the Final Frontier, probably Generations is in there for Trek. Generations to me is all right. I think the yeah, uh, it's not great. It's a low for me. It's a low. First Contact is not exactly for me a great one either. Um, First and there Contact are... is so good. What is wrong with you? Well, I'm sorry. It's James not not Cromwell, the it's not the worst. The there are a couple. Oh. There's there's what Insurrection. Uh, that one's also, yeah, that was really bad. The last Star Trek, as far as that's concerned, is not exactly a, a high point as far as I think Idris Elbow could have been given a lot better material to work with, but we won't go there. I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the two Thor movies, the first ones are absolutely horrid. And the Hulk movies themselves are not much better. Those three are, are really not that well done. I didn't mind uh, Thor 2. I didn't mind that. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Ragnarok yet, but I, I didn't mind Thor. Well, too. Ragnarok's okay. Ragnarok's okay. I, Ragnarok's... I don't know. I hear it gets a lot of check marks. I just, I, yeah. I don't know. I didn't mind the second one. I didn't but mind with Bond, I think, what? Her Majesty's Secret Service? I think that's the one that people just seem to go after. People single that out because George Lazenby's Bond, and that has nothing to do with the story. It's a really good story. It's just the fact that your titular character isn't played by Connery or Moore. I thought that one that was okay. Die Another Day is, is over-the-top cheesy, but I still think it's a pretty fun flick as far as for what it is. There's a couple other. Uh, what's the one with Denise Richards as... Uh, World is Not Enough. Yeah, World is Not Enough, where she... Okay, that one's probably the worst one of them. I'll put Die Another Day is worse than World is Not Enough. Madonna is a fencing instructor, invisible cars, ice hotels facial like swaps uh, i don't know the only thing i really like about die another day is, is the opening like 20 minutes where bond actually gets taken prisoner and mi6 won't won't trade for him they're like no you've crossed the line too much and that's that i, I personally dislike the world is not enough dr christmas for goodness sake you couldn't think of a better name uh, just that was bad well it stuck yeah. with you didn't it for all the wrong reasons. I've had meals that stuck in my teeth for a while too. You don't, I don't think I'd like to remember those. You got a floss. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. You got to get your pop culture cosmos floss out there. But it's a close race. It's between all three. Now, if you get into others, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, universe, Harry Potter universe, Star Wars, Star Wars, you know, there's, there's so many universes out there that you could talk about that. And they each have their highs and lows. So, it goes without saying, but I think all three have their reasons why that they've connected with an audience for so long. I'm just hopeful for Star Trek to actually get a nice reboot if actually Tarantino is going to pull something off like that. With Bond, obviously, you know that Bond's just what they're already filming in production, I think. Danny Boyle's actually doing it now. So yeah, Danny Boyle signed on, and it's the writer of Transpotting and him had kind of cooked up the story. And uh, I think they're set to start shooting in May. This will be Daniel Craig's last outing, so I don't think they can they bribe him back for more. So, with the, some of the offers that were being floated out there for him returning, must be nice. Must be nice. But then you got Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know you are not exactly the biggest fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's not that I'm not a big fan. It's just that I'm just burnt out, and I just feel like there's way too much hype over these movies for what you actually get out of them anymore. The movies are all well crafted for the most part, you know, like. They have a formula. And that's the problem. I just feel it coming. I see it coming. I see the trailer. And I felt like I've just spent two hours in a theater and I'm good. That's the way I feel on DC movies with a DC movie universe. Now that could be the worst of the universes that are out there. Maybe I'll try to put together a panel of the worst cinematic universes next time we talk. And uh, maybe I'll do another sequel wars kind of comparison too. There you go. There you go. Sounds good. Yeah. But like I said, you should... Bring that that show back. It'd be kind of cool for entertainment. Uh, it's so stressful. I can't do it. For everybody that doesn't know, the great debate, nobody knows what side they're on when they go into it. They just know the loose topic. So we did Battle of the Bonds once, like who's the better Bond? And the roles were assigned, like who you had to defend or argue on behalf of going into it. And it's just too stressful. It's too stressful. I can't do it. Pop cultures shouldn't be stressful. This is true, but unfortunately, as we see in our days and age, that people love to argue about anything including pop culture all right well that'll do it for the cosmic crossfire if you have a question for rob about the show itself maybe about a topic or about his great projects including the kitty documentary origins and evolutions 
Missing Mom, Nintendo Quest, or the upcoming Kickstarter project on April 24th. Just give him a shout out. What could it be? What could it what be? Could it be? What could it be? April 24th. Tune in and find out. That's right. Or you can of course listen-, listen here and you'll hear more tidbits as we go. This is the exclusive source of information for said secret project. And there'll be lots of stuff in the works. But if you have questions, send it to us here at popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Or you can shoot any of us at DM right here at Pop Culture Cosmos, Humanic Media, Game Source, or Rob McCallum Films on Facebook or Twitter. But Rob is a little different on Twitter. It's at Rob McZob. Rob, it's been great having you on the show, part of the Cosmic Crossfire, and of course, a part of the Pop Culture Cosmos. Brink here from Super BS, talking about the things you know you love and the things you'd love to know. Join us weekly for a podcast about video games. Mostly. That's the Super BS Gamescast, available today on YouTube and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And we're back. We just want to make sure and let you know our shows are being streamed seven days a week on online radio stations and that we deliver two brand new shows covering the latest in pop culture each and every Monday and Friday to Apple Podcasts or over 30 different podcast networks. Just subscribe to any one of them on the Pop Culture Cosmos channel to get extra content or just check out the Pop Culture Cosmos Facebook page for our entire radio schedule and the list of those podcast networks. Josh, I know you got a great thing going on with Humanica Media, so break it down for me, man. What is going on with your awesome place known as Humanica Media? A brand new episode of Topic Topicocalypse just dropped. You can catch it now. Hurry. There's only five in stock. You got to get it quick. Just get on there. Check it out. It's about... I pre-ordered, man. I pre-ordered the collector's edition. Yeah, you did, man. Make sure you fill out that survey, too. It's about concerts, of course, because it was Daniel's topic, and he wanted to know what our dream concert is, and if we got to schedule Coachella, who would we put on the bill? So that was an interesting podcast, but also, if you haven't checked it out... Hold on. Hold on. You two at the Hollywood Bowl, and you two. I did Pearl Jam at the what's the theater in Seattle? The the oh, more, the Key Arena, the Moore Theater, where Eddie Vedder, where they filmed the Ten video. Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and also you can check out the last episode of Topic Topicocalypse, which features an exclusive interview with Adam Morgan of Hope's Fall. Super BS is also going to uh, a, have an exclusive interview coming out on Tuesday with Janemin Nordhagen, the developer of uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. So you can definitely check that out. And also uh, Podcast Radio Network. Gerald, go ahead and tell them what time, man. I was going to say, if you didn't say the water tastes like wine, I would. Because remember, I had such a hard time with it at E3. But it is the Attack of the Humanicans, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Podcast Radio Network, where you can also find our shows from the Pop Culture Cosmos on Monday and Friday evenings. So, Josh, you wanted to talk about some great things in the video game world that not a lot of people seem to talk about and seem to forget about, but they are so identifiable when it comes to mascots in video games. So, I wanted to hear more about it when you brought it up as a topic. So tell me, my friend, what are your thoughts as far as mascots and video games? Well, it's weird. So we have we have Spyro the Dragon HD trilogy coming out, and I'm I'm stoked. I'm beyond stoked about that. Crash Bandicoot just came out. 
And it made me wonder, like back when we were, we had a, a point when consoles had mascots, like they had games, you're like, you thought Sony, that's Crash, that's Spyro, Nintendo, that's Mario, that's Donkey Kong, Sega, that's Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, and then the Xbox came out and that's that was like the first shift away from mascot oriented gaming to franchise oriented gaming so it was no longer you didn't have a specific character selling a console as much as you had a franchise selling a console so xbox had halo obviously now it has gears of war fable playstation is uncharted it's probably gonna be horizon zero dawn now god of war yeah i was gonna say that now they're putting all their stock into god of war and actually I asked a question from several people out there with the Retro City Games Facebook group, and they're talking about how they are getting a PlayStation 4 and are actually interested in it for the first time because of the God of War game coming out later this week. Oh, it looks fantastic. I'm super excited about it. I'm probably not going to play it until like another two weeks just because I want to sit down and be able to play it all the way through without having to like go to work or anything. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, so now like the 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 mascots as far as these video game consoles go, you know, Sega's not not really around anymore, not in the form that they used to be. You're right. Sega's not around the way it used to be, but they're still trying. And in fact, they did announce in Japan this past weekend that there is their own version of the Sega Mini console on the way that actually will be an official version from them with the installed games that that we've seen so far that Nintendo has done with their own minis so far. So Sega's coming out with their own mini Genesis coming out later. I believe it's later this year from what I, I remember. Yeah, they, they talked about that. And that that's awesome. I'm, I'm stoked because a lot of these air games, you can't play mini old cartridges on them. So like I have some Sega games and I can't play it on my air games Sega reproduction console. So I'm, I'll definitely be picking one of these up. But getting back to mascots and video games, you, you said there was a shift when the Xbox came out because it went more to a franchise. What do you want to see as far as mascots and video games? Because like you said, in the late 80s and the 90s, especially as far as video games, we were very much into seeing and identifying a console with a certain type of mascot attached to it. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this, like video games now and kids. So all the kids, like my nephew, like I, I tried to get him to play um, Faye on the Nintendo Switch, and he's just not smart enough to play a, a sophisticated game on a console. And it's not just because he's not smart, but it's because a lot of kids his age aren't smart enough to follow a video, uh, like a complicated video game. They're not, you know, you take like your God of Wars, your Final Fantasies, your legend of zeldas like a a lot of kids can't play those because they don't have the attention span for it anymore and i don't i know mobile gaming has a lot to do with it because a lot of those games are like instant satisfaction you know look at this flashing light presses car blows up stuff like that you know it makes me wonder if maybe mobile gaming is going to bring about the end of consoles but you know that's why uh games like PUBG, fortnite are coming over to sell uh mobile platforms but this gets back to my original point is that they're not marketing consoles to kids anymore. They're, and I know it's maybe they they're thinking about this. I hope they're thinking about it. But like when I was a kid, 
they marketed consoles to kids. They marketed them through Donkey Kong. They marketed them through Mario. They marketed them through through Sonic. These like characters that were kid friendly, and they were meant to uh, sell consoles for. So I would go to my mom and say, "Hey, mom, I want this PlayStation so I can go buy Crash Bandicoot or play Spyro." When Spyro came out, I was so obsessed with getting this game that, and it was sold out everywhere. And my mom drove me to six different stores before we found a copy of it. And it was the last one. And they don't do that anymore. They're, they they market Forza, Halo, stuff like this, like games that aren't really supposed to be for kids, you know. And that's I think that's why kids under the age of twelve don't really care about consoles that much. And then it also kills it going later into it because they don't have a history with any of the games like we had a history growing up. It was the original intent of retailers out there to market video game consoles to children because they actually, where did they start putting it in, at first in the toy section? How do they market it as a toy? How do they market it with other toys? So definitely that was the origination of the video game console, but you're right. It has evolved into something different at this point in time. Kids are brought up on mobile devices. They're brought up on tablets. They're brought up on their parents' phones They're brought up on a lot of other things outside of the console market. And it isn't until the kids want something more developed that maybe tell a stronger narrative that maybe, like you said, are in need of a a larger attention span than what kids used to have. Because when you and I were kids, you you and I would go ahead and be enthralled with an adventure game, with an expansive game of the of maybe a, a from the PC or or a console or what have you, whether it was a RTS, whether it was a sports game or whatnot, something just really involving that only a console game or a PC game or an arcade game could provide. Now it's something completely different. The kids just want to go ahead and use the tablets, use the mobile devices, and play those type of games. That could be a bad sign for the industry unless they change and evolve themselves. What are your thoughts on the ever-changing video game industry and mascots being the key possibly to a revival for the console industry to younger audiences? Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also as well, popculturecosmos, Humanica Media, and Game Source on Facebook and Twitter as well. When we come back... Anthony Barber and I are going to break down the NBA postseason awards, our best in the NBA for this season. Plus also as well, after that, Josh and I will return to talk a little bit about Thor Ragnarok and was the change a good one for Thor? Was it a good thing for him and was it a good thing for the MCU? We're going to talk about that as we close out the show. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos. For the latest reviews and opinions on everything pop culture, head on over to our brand new site, www.popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. We're here to break down all the stuff that's going on in the NBA. I want to talk now, since the season is over, there's a lot of great postseason awards that we can discuss. And who better to break it down with me than my good friend? He is our NBA man in the know. It's Anthony Barberin. How's it going, my friend? It's going well. First off, one of my favorites, because you know it has one of my favorite players involved with it, it's the Rookie of the Year. We've got a lot of great rookies that came out. I think this is a far superior class of rookies than we had last year. Sorry, no disrespect to any of those that were out there, but 
since Joel Embiid was injured for most of the season, really you can't gauge it as a very good season for rookies last year. So this was a much better year for rookies. We had so many dominant rookies that were out there. Laurie Markkinen, Kyle Kuzma, obviously Tatum from Boston as well. And then, of course, you had the big two that did so well this season, Ben Simmons from Philadelphia, and also as well you had Donovan Mitchell from Utah. After all said and done, those were my top five picks. It's a toss-up because Donovan Mitchell did so well and was the primary reason for Utah's great push to a playoff spot when we all thought they were going to fall after Gordon Hayward. But 15 wins in a row, my friend. Or was it 16? I think 16 wins to close out the season. Ben Simmons basically took the team on his back, averaged virtually a triple-double. Even with Joel Embiid out, they won all those games and skyrocketed to third place in the Eastern Conference. So that being said, I think I'm going to still give it to Ben Simmons, but just by a hair. I think it's, one for me, one of the closest races out there. What are your thoughts on the Rookie of the Year? There were a lot of great rookies this year, and I think that shows a lot of promise going forward. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this was a great, great rookie class. I was one of the people who said going into the draft that my first pick would have been Jason Tatum. I thought he was the best player coming out. Ben Simmons obviously was last year and he missed all of last year. He come back this year. I did not see this from Donovan Mitchell at all. And there was no way I thought he would be this kind of a player. Nor did I or or Kyle Kuzma for that matter. Right. As, as well, Kyle Kuzma was a huge surprise. But Donovan Mitchell was amazing. I mean, 20 points a game, took over the lead of that team, and he got them into the playoffs, and he, he's he been spectacular. He doesn't, if you watch him play, does not look like a rookie in the least, and I think he's going to be an exciting player for Utah for years to come, and especially, like you said, after losing Gordon Hayward the way they did and making the trades that they made to kind of jettison some of the players that they did in the middle of the season, and after that, to take off the way they did. Donovan Mitchell was great, but I'm with you. In my eyes, the rookie of the year is Ben Simmons. I think that closing March did it. I, I really think that winning so many games in a row without Joel Embiid really just pushed it over the top. He was ahead for most of the season. Then the big surge by Utah gave Donovan Mitchell all that momentum. But you know, closing out the season with 16 wins in a row, just you know, you got it. Right. Yeah. And for me, I kind of always had Ben Simmons as my rookie of the year. When I'm just I'm watching the the rebounds, the assists, the triple doubles, the things he's doing on a night in, night out basis, that is basically whatever is needed, but at such a high level. He is special and you can see it. He's gonna be a special player. And if like he can I ever said, find a jump shot, I'm telling you the sky's the limit. Yeah. Even if he doesn't. I think there's an aspect of intelligence to him knowing what he can and cannot do and not trying to be what he thinks people are going to want him to be and just do what he does well. I think at some point he'll find more of a jump shot, but his ability to know what he's great at and and to stick to that makes him, in my opinion, that much better. And like you said, for him to have a, a player next to him as good as Joel Embiid is and as talented as he is, to go out and to run off the amount of games that they ran off to close out the season and to move into the top three pretty much, I think, solidified him being a rookie of the year. Couldn't agree with you more. And Ben Simmons just totally dominated for the last couple weeks of the season and definitely deserves the award. But, you know, if somebody were to choose Donovan Mitchell, I couldn't really argue with them either. 
with the defensive player of the year, there are a couple of factors. I know if you look at it from a statistical standpoint, you would have to lean towards maybe a Joel Embiid or even a Rudy Gobert, but it's hard to look at them sometimes in the fact that both of them had significant injuries and took significant time off. There are some other players in play. Kevin Durant obviously wanted to it was it was really vocal in his aspirations to become the defensive player of the year uh, and and others as well that are that are really just good defenders that help their team win games with their defense. I think when it comes down to it, Rudy Gobert was a big enough difference for the Utah Jazz when he came back. That started their push towards a playoff run and I just think at this point in time that Rudy Gobert played just enough to get that award for me because I truly think he is right now the best defensive player in the NBA. Like you said, there were, there were a number of guys who have been really, really good defensively this year. The problem with a lot of these guys is that their individual defense, as good as it has been, has not translated into complete team defense. And I think that's probably why I would go with Rudy Gobert because when he's there, he transforms his team's complete defense, and you can see the difference. The difference not only past the eye test, but but even the numbers make a big enough jump. But there's guys like Kevin Durant, individual numbers-wise, with his blocks and his steals, was great. Anthony Davis is another one who, you know, he'll get you, he'll get you, you know, almost two steals. He'll get you two blocks every game. And and so there's other guys, Luke Bamute for Houston. The transformation that, in my opinion, that he brought to that team to make them a better defensive team overall for the course of the year compared to last year is something that I take into account. But uh, I agree with you. I think uh, Rudy Gobert's defensive player of the year this year. Most improved player, I think, at this point in time, if someone tells me someone other than Victor Oladipo, I would have to say they're crazy because I don't think anybody expected this out of Victor Oladipo. Going over to Indiana, which we all just kind of laughed at that trade of him and Sabonis being traded to there for Paul George and thought, man, Indiana's going to stink. Our record's going to be awful. And look what happened. Because of the way that Victor Oladipo played and his great improvement, they became a playoff team. And they're someone to reckon with in the Eastern Conference now for the foreseeable future because of his outstanding improvement. What are your thoughts on the most improved player, Anthony? And and is there somebody else I should be looking at instead of him? There is one person that I'm going to throw out there. I do think Victor Oladipo is the most improved player this year. I think not only because of his individual numbers, but also because of his impact on his team from, again, what we thought they were going to be after losing Paul George to still being a playoff team and not only a playoff team, but the fifth seed. So I, I think Victor Oladipo is the most improved player. But my dark horse candidate that I'm going to throw out there is somebody who I think will win a a different award this year, and that's Lou Williams. I think he, this year, career high in points, career high in assists, and that's all off the bench in, in limited minutes. So I think he's another player who, if you look at the course of his career and you look at this year, is, is you can, the improvement in his game. I think is, is, is major, but I, I agree with you also. I think uh, Victor Oladipo, and what he did for Indiana uh, makes him the most improved player. I think he should be the sixth man of the year. Whether or not he does get it over Eric Gordon, because Eric Gordon was the sixth man on the team with the best record in the NBA, 
that's another thing to be seen. But I do think that Lou Williams was the heart and soul of the LA Clippers this year. And definitely he has improved play. He's above the age of 30. So there should be no way he's improving in his game. But sure enough, he found another level to play at even better than when he was with the Lakers, when he was with Toronto, when he was with Houston, when he was with all those other teams, he's found a different level. And at times he willed the Clippers into a playoff contention where, in fact, they were actually one of the top eight teams at various points of time in the latter part of the season. So definitely I agree with you that Lou Williams is a proof player for this year, but I, I at this point in time, I got to go with Oladipo. It might be a closer race than I think, but yeah, you're right. Definitely Lou Williams is a very, very good pick, and I think he should be the sixth man of the year at the very least. One of the things I want to go ahead and break down is the coach of the year. And this is also a hotly contested award as far as a lot of people are eligible for it. You've got Brad Stevens. You've got Nate McMillan. You've got, obviously, Mike D'Antoni. You've got Dwayne Casey in Toronto. You've got so many other great coaches out there. I think I'm going to go with a little bit of a different choice. I think I'm going to go with Dwayne Casey from Toronto because no one expected Toronto to be at the level that they were. No one expected them to be the number one seed out of the East. And no one thought that they could go ahead and change their team, even though their two main players were already there. And he changed the style of the team and and, and a little bit better approach to as far as what they were doing. And it paid off with a successful season and a number one seed for the first time. And hopefully a great playoff for him because they are so supportive of the Raptors in the Toronto area. What coach stands out to you? Quinn Snyder from the Jazz is another choice. And Terry Stotts from Portland. There's so many great choices. Which coach stood out to you as far as being the coach of the year? Brett Brown from the Sixers. The list can go on and on. Yeah. And that's the thing. They're they're this year more than any other year, I think, um, in a long time. You get a lot of coaches who are worthy of NBA coach of the year. Guys like, like you said, Quinn Snyder, guys who I, I think aren't getting recognition, who I'd like to say. Ty Lu for his team to win one less game than they did last year with the subtraction of Kyrie Irving with the total changeover in the middle of the season of you know, to more than half their roster. I think there's a testament to his ability as a coach, Doc Rivers. I don't think any team this year had more injuries than his team had. They traded their franchise player away and they still won, you know, 42 games. My pick, I think I'm going to go with Nate McMillan. Again, it, it's it's kind of like the same thing with, with, with Victor Oladipo. Nobody had any idea that that team was going to be what it was. You have to give credit to Victor Oladipo for helping that team to the level that it got, I think you also have to give Nate McMillan credit. The coaching has a lot to do with it. And I think for him to get that out of Victor Oladipo and the rest of those players on a nightly basis for them to get the the, the wins that they got, I think he uh he's my he's my choice. Now we're gonna go ahead and touch on an all NBA team of the five players you think are the best choices for the all NBA team. For me, it starts off with at the guards, we're gonna go with James Harden and Damian Lillard, I think those two players from the guard position have affected the game the most when Steph Curry is not in the lineup. I think I'm going to go with LeBron James. How can you not? Single-handedly did a great job for the team that he was playing for, even though he had his ups and downs. 
didn't do so great on the defensive end, but from an offensive standpoint, looks just as good as ever, even at 34, 33, 34 years of age. Also going to go with, as a forward, I think I'm going to go with Kevin Durant. I think he uh, had a good enough season where it was good enough for me as far as being able to be out of that platform at the level of being one of the best and NBA players. Although it wasn't, I think, as great as I or a lot of other people hoped it would be, it still is good enough to be one of the five best players that are out there. And as my main man in the middle, uh, that would probably be Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, even after Boogie Cousins' injury, still willed his team to a playoff spot and produced some gaudy and outstanding numbers. So your thoughts on an NBA team? Like I said, if you choose Durant off the team, I wouldn't argue with you. If you choose Dillard off the team, I wouldn't argue with you. But I think I'm pretty set when it comes to LeBron, Anthony Davis, and also James Harden as well. And and you're right. I have those three in there as locks. And it may have been stat padding or stat chasing, but for Westbrook to average a triple-double for the second straight year, I I, I have to put him at the first team. For me, um, looking at – I feel like if if I'm going to give him defensive player of the year, then I have to put him in there. So I would move Anthony Davis to my four and Rudy Gobert to my five. But it all leads into an MVP, my friend, and – you know, I don't think there's any question who it should be, although I'm sorry, LeBron would actually question it. <laughs> hey. But I would probably have to go with James Harden. I think he's probably the most definitive choice of any of these picks uh, that are out there. He just had an outstanding season. Your thoughts? I'm going to go with James Harden. I'm going to make a devil's advocate plea for LeBron. And this is just depending on how you look at it. The reason if somebody were to choose LeBron, I could not be mad at them. Because um, he's the world's best player. If you still ask he, me who's the best player in the world, I would have to still tell you LeBron. To me, if they came up with the prototype NBA athlete, my gosh, he checks off all the boxes better than anyone. But and, and don't get me wrong, he still had a great season. But yeah. Right. If and, and to me the deciding factor is the win, the the difference in win. If they were within five games of each other, maybe even six, seven games within of each other, then I would give it to LeBron. But the fact that there's so much distance between them, one's got 65 wins, the other's got 50. Because of that, I can't give it to him. Uh, so if somebody said, listen, I, I think he's the MVP, I, I couldn't argue with it. But in my opinion, James Harden is the MVP. We'll just go ask Derek Rose to get back one of his two MVPs that he might have not fully deserved and give it to LeBron to hopefully as a consolation prize. But no, I'm just right. kidding. I'm kidding about that. Anybody who's a uh, diehard Derek Rose fan, I'm sorry about that. But I think that's probably a well-known fact at this point in time. It's like, in hindsight, uh, maybe, well, you know, and I'll let you fill in the blank on that one. Once again, it is some great talk from the NBA with our good friend, Anthony Barberin. If you want to reach out to Anthony and ask him questions on the NBA scene, just give us a shout out. Pop Culture Cosmos, Humanica Media, Game Source, or Inside Sports on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be sure to get him that message and he'll be glad to answer it for you as well. Again, I'll tell you what, it's been great talking to you, my friend. He had great picks as far as who's going to head out and be the best of the bunch in the NBA playoffs. Anthony, once again, it is great to have you on the show. As always, thanks for having me. It's always a joy to come on. I look forward to coming on next time. 
You got it, my friend. Always great to have you a part of the Pop Culture Cosmos. If you're tired of sifting through flea markets for rare and unique games, we can help. Retro City Games in Henderson, Nevada, only five minutes from the Las Vegas Strip, has all your favorite gaming staples, classics, and a wide selection of rare games with new stuff always appearing on our shelves. Come in and chat with Nicole or Doug about your love of games and watch as they help you complete your collection or find your childhood favorite. And don't forget, Retro City Games loves trade-ins. So if you have any Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega, Xbox, PlayStation, or even PC games, come in and visit Retro City Games today. Welcome to the new metropolis of gaming, Retro City Games. And we're now closing out the show. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and Game Source. Thanks so much for sticking around for the entire show. We truly appreciate it. I want to thank Anthony Barberin, plus also as well, Rob McCallum, as always, from Rob McCallum Films. Josh, as we continue to break down the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're up to Thor Ragnarok, which was a decidedly different shift in how we perceive the Thor character from the previous two installments of Thor. I liked it. I thought it was a good direction for it. I know you have some issues more so than I did. After I got over the initial shock of it all, I wondered if it was a decision by the the writers. It was a decision by the studio. Was it or was it just Waititi going, you know, it'd be really cool if we did this. And, you know, I, I respect him as a filmmaker, like more so than I respect someone like Rian Johnson going, you know, it'd be really cool if Daisy's parents were nobody. I feel like it could have been handled better. You grow attached to these characters and you feel even like, you know, the dark world does a good job of making you like actually feel for these characters. And then they just kill them off. It felt like they're trying to tell too many stories in one. I liked it. It didn't, it didn't like fumble through it in the way that like a Sony Spider-Man flick did it. But there's just parts. Cause as a comic book fan, as someone who's read both these comic arcs, it felt like there was stuff in it that they should have shown, but they didn't. Maybe they're focusing on more of a broader audience as far as what they can accept and what they like and appreciate rather than what the comic book centric fan may be more interested in. I think that's probably it. And and that's why they could get a broader audience to accept it, embrace it and come more into the theaters than maybe the darker tones of the first two Thor films. What are your thoughts on Thor Ragnarok? Do you like the shift in direction for Thor the character and also Thor's universe? Share us your thoughts, popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Also as well, popculturecosmos, humanic media, and game source on Facebook and Twitter as well. Well, Josh, it's going to be a great episode we've got coming up on Friday. We're going to be talking a lot about God of War because it is coming out this Friday and a lot of people are really looking forward to it. So we're going to be talking about that and a whole lot more on this upcoming episode of the PCC Multiverse on Friday. So for Josh Peterson, this is Gerald Glassford. It's another beautiful day in paradise right here in the Bob Culture Cosmos. We thank you for listening. And here's hoping you have yourself a great day. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network 
your station for all things geek. Tangent Bound Network. Let your voice be heard. TangentBoundNetwork.com Thanks so much for downloading the Pop Culture Cosmos as a special treat. We're adding a bonus episode, which starts right now. So sit back and relax as you enjoy more awesome goodness from the Pop Culture Cosmos family. And stay tuned as more great podcasts are on the way. Thanks again for listening to us here at the Pop Culture Cosmos. Hello? Hello? Hey, who's interrupting my intro? Is this a joke? This is no joke, kid. This is the Earth Station DCU Podcast. No clothes from anybody. Sickening. We're not that kind of podcast, kid. We talk DC news, comics, movies, and television. You gotta do better than that. We reviewed Supergirl, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and Arrow every week. That a fact. How much do I owe you? You don't owe us anything. The podcast is free. Oh, it's just I just heard this story in the cab, and it is all I can think about. We are part of the ESO Network. This is amazing. Why, thank you. And join us every week for another edition of the Earth Station DCU. Now, can we get back to the show, please? Super, 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 super. BS. Hey gang, Brank here. Today I'm bringing you my review of Flint Hook. I hope you guys enjoy it. Flint Hook. A roguelike roguelite. Webster defines a roguelite as a game with a loop that becomes more and more rewarding the more times the loop is completed, till you finally finish the game. Webster also defined a roguelike as dog shit, or a lesson in constant frustration. Yes, it's important to know Merriam-Webster's proper dictionary definitions for these two incredibly challenging genres of games. One is close to the pinnacle of perfection, and the other is a smoldering pile of shit. Roguelikes feel impossible to win, and when you finally do finish the loop and kill the big bad, you're rewarded with the ability to start all over from scratch. whoop de doo da day oodalali. This is a style of game where you only get better by playing. No upgrades, no RPG mechanics, nothing. Some people enjoy the style of games. Those people are fighting game fans, also known as crazy people. Flinthook, in its heart of hearts, wants to be a roguelike. But thankfully, it falls in the camp of roguelites. Till the end of the first three bosses in Flinthook, the game plays very similarly to the excellent Rogue Legacy. In my opinion, Rogue Rogue Legacy is the premiere of the roguelite genre. For those who haven't played Rogue Legacy, here's the general gist. You're in a castle. You kill enemies. Collect gold. There are four bosses that you can take on in any order. However, there is a natural order in terms of which one you should defeat first. Whenever you die, you can use your gold to upgrade your characters, a lineage with hilarious random traits. You can also find weapon armor and perk upgrades that can be equipped. 
When you defeat a boss, you are unable to challenge them again until starting a new game plus. Now that's important to know because here is Flint Hook's loop. After you finish the tutorial ship in Flint Hook, you choose a boss to fight. These are unlocked in a specific order. Each run, or life, starts the same. You have a pool of 10 points to spend on perks, all with varying costs and abilities. You may choose a life perk that costs 2 points but will increase your health by 10 points. When you begin, you always start this with the same gear regardless of perks. You have your blaster, your grapple hook, and your time belt, which allows you to slow down time. Each boss requires a certain amount of ships or levels to be completed in order to find him. For the first boss, you have to complete three ships, and then you can take him on. And this all needs to complete it in one run, one life. In addition, when you are on the ships, you'll find sub-weapons, stores that sell perks that only last for that run, stores that sell healing items that are used when purchased, and the elusive, but highly sought after, green tokens. After you complete a ship, you'll be given a gray token needed to get to the boss, and either one or two green tokens. These green tokens are used to pers buy persistent upgrades. The first plus 10 life upgrade costs 5 green tokens. You can also buy more perk points so that you can equip more perks in a run, or buy new sub-weapons or a whole lot of other things. There's also an experience system that plays into it when things are which unlock things in the store. But back to the green tokens. 5 green tokens, which as I mentioned can purchase a permanent plus 10 life upgrade, could take anywhere from 1 or 2 to 5 runs, as long as you complete 1 ship per run to collect. Now this is important to note because each boss increases the total ship count needed to reach him. The first boss takes 3 ships, the second 4, the third 5, and this is when Flint Hook becomes a totally different game. On the fourth and final boss of the game, it becomes a roguelike. Spoilers ahead. To fight the fourth and final boss, you have to complete 12 ships. After the first three ships, you refight the first boss. After four more ships, you refight the second boss. Five more, the third. Now you need to finish all of these ships and bosses in one run, including fighting and defeating the final boss. Now you can still upgrade your character so it's not totally a roguelike, but similar to most roguelikes, you have to finish all of these in one run, which unlike most roguelikes, takes about an hour. Now that we have a common understanding, I can begin to review the game. I just had to give you a heads up so that you know what you're getting into. Let's start with the gameplay. It's very tight. The masked protagonist controls Silky Smooth, and after a short period of time it's easy to swing across the ship, dodging enemies and hazards as you go. The moment-to-moment -moment gameplay is also very exciting. Knowing that you need to avoid damage so that you can make it to those bosses with as much health as possible. While the gameplay may control very well, and it's truly a pleasure to play, that doesn't mean it's forgiving. You may enter a room with 75% health, and if you take on the wrong enemy, damn you laser eye cyclops dude, or miss a jump, thanks a lot spike walls, you could leave with 50% or less. It's not unusual to lose 30 health in a room, and when you begin with only 100, before perks and persistent upgrades, that's a lot to lose. Overall though, I found the ships to be mostly fair. It was a boss that I found to be a tad frustrating, specifically the third boss. The third boss has this move that it's almost impossible to outrun or outhook. 
He shoots this laser beam that moves clockwise, and the only way to not take damage is to hookshot around his ship as fast as possible. But this is also the only time that the boss is vulnerable. I found after a couple tries that I just needed to take the damage. However, he had other moves that were also difficult to dodge. So if I entered his lair with less than 75% health, I usually resign myself to defeat. And this was with nearly 200 health after all my upgrades. Now I assume the last boss is even more frustrating at times. I say assume because I'm breaking my own rule and reviewing this before I finish it. I'm only breaking this rule because the final boss run takes so dang long. Again, it's between 45 minutes and an hour. You can imagine what it would be like to get to the third boss, about 30 minutes into the run, and then lose because you weren't able to hold on to 75% of your health during the 12 ships that you had to complete beforehand. Now before I make this game seem totally unfair, there are a few boons to the player. Normally after every battle you get an apple, which restores 10 health, and you can buy run lasting upgrades. You can also buy health, but you better hope that there are stores that sell potions and that you have the money when you get to these stores. Needless to say, I tried the final run several times and I realized that I had played the game for 15 hours, overall enjoyed my time, and did not want to feel otherwise by forcing myself to finish this last boss. Take that as you will. If the gameplay is tight, then the pixel art is phenomenal. There's a ton of character. Most of the characters you meet on the ship are super imaginative, and while you'll see them many times during your play, there are almost a dozen of them and they're all really, really great. On top of these NPCs, the boss design is also wonderful. I really want to play a four-player co-op game where me and the first three bosses team up and raid larger ships. If I was to lay one criticism of the art, it's that the environments get very stale. I know that they want to keep the space pirate ship theme, but I could have done with a pirate ship that was supposed to be a jungle or some other type of ecosystem. I understand that this is not what developers wanted, and I respect that, but 15 hours in, things were getting a little bland. One thing that was not boring or bland, the music. I love it. It might not be the feels fest that Celeste was, but it's awesome rock tunes. I bought the album and I put it on when I'm playing other games. You can hear in the background right now. It's such a great soundtrack. I don't know if it will stay with me the way Undertale and Celeste have, but I would put it up there with anything Jake Kaufman has done, including Shovel Knight. Art and gameplay is what Flint Hook is about. Plot is not. There is a story hidden in there, but there's not much to say. In actuality, there's nothing to say. Another amazing thing that Flint Hook does, there's no dialogue. Everything is shown. The character animations for the cutscenes, 5 to 10 seconds at most, explain what's going on and what your motives are. This was something that I thought Hyperlight Drifter did amazingly well, and I wish more games tried showing instead of just telling. I love a great story as much as the rest, but game developers should know what their strengths are and rely on them, and for the developers of Flinthook, tribute games, they know that they are the mercenary kings of tight gameplay. All in all, I was super impressed. If you're looking for an excellent roguelite to play on your Switch or PS4, Xbox One, or PC, then look no further. Till we get Rogue Legacy on Switch, this is the king of roguelites. I cannot say enough kind words, but like I said, I didn't finish it. I didn't want to ruin my opinion of the game by forcing myself to play another 5-10 to 10 hours to finish something that I felt I had seen the majority of. If you feel that you can trust a reviewer who did not get good, 
enough to beat an extremely challenging roguelite, then play this game. There are a lot of worse ways to spend 15 bucks. I give it 170 ghost tokens over 200 destroyed space pirate ships. Peace.